0: Welcome to He Sang, She Sang. It is the show about opera from classical New York, WQXR. I'm Mike Schaub.
1: And I'm Marin Lazian. And with us today is WQXR's fantastic morning show host, Jeff Spurgeon. Hey. Hi.
0: Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you. Always good to see you. Pleasure to be here. So Jeff is joining us today to talk about uh, Charles Gounod's Romeo and Juliet. It's a story everybody knows for the most part, Right a story that is just all over. There's West Side Story, there's been a big Hollywood movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, but the original is William Shakespeare.
2: Except not. In fact, Shakespeare grabbed the tale in the latter part of the 1500s from an Italian story that had come earlier in the 1500s. And so Shakespeare's, it's the most famous version of the story. Maybe that's why it's set in Italy instead of being set in England or France or somewhere else because it wasn't Shakespeare's tale originally. And in fact, the guy who wrote it earlier probably cobbled it together from some earlier stories. Maybe at one time there was an actual family rivalry that wound up with the deaths of a couple of uh, their family members who fell in love, even though they weren't supposed to. But Shakespeare's is the most famous version.
0: So this could have been like a true crime version.
1: Almost. Well, it could have. And especially uh, in Italy at that time... Italy was comprised of lots of small city-states that were always, always in conflict with each other. So actually, this kind of blood feud was exactly the sort of thing that might have happened, and it sets the stage beautifully for the story of love. Well, I don't know if it really triumphs over uh, family rivalry, since they both end up dead, but love versus this family rivalry.
0: Okay. So, you know, Shakespeare didn't set it in France or England, but... The opera, because this is a show about opera, is in French, right?
2: The opera is in French, but the setting is Italy, and we're in America. So it's all very international and thus quite confusing.
1: <laughs> we
0: are in America for a few more days.
1: <laughs> yeah, This is actually just one setting of Romeo and Juliet. I think there are actually a couple of dozen operas that were written based on this, uh, based on this story. There's this is...
2: more than one Barber of Seville... There are lots of different versions of lots of different yes. stories and operas. Yeah, yes. a couple of dozen Romeos and Juliets. Have any of them like, hung on? And
1: This is basically the only one. Except I mean,
2: for Bellini's opera. There's
1: Bellini. But
2: it's not Romeo and Juliet, it's E. Montevecchi,
1: E. Capuletti. E, uh, yeah.
2: yeah, E. Capuletti. So you're already confused because it isn't even Romeo and Juliet, it's the family names. In that opera. But that's the only other big operatic version. There are symphonic stories. There's. The ballet. Uh, right. Prokofiev's ballet, which was originally written to have the lovers survive and go on at the end. And then, then they had to change that because it just, liberties. just won't do. And um, Tchaikovsky's ballet. And Berlioz's is Romeo and Juliet, too. Yeah. So it's been a fierce and wonderful subject for lots of composers. So
0: I guess the only dumb question is the question you don't ask, what's the story about?
2: Well, it's the story. It's the story that we know from Shakespeare. The major difference that Guno took was to make the thing a little more commercial. Because the opera is a great device for a great soprano, Juliet, and a great tenor, Romeo. But you want to have them sing love things to each other, right? Not just the balcony scene. In Shakespeare's play, Romeo dies, and then Juliet finds him and stabs herself. And this is backwards. And, well, not exactly. It's, it's that Romeo almost dies first, but Juliet finds him in time for them to have one last duet before he dies and before she stabs herself. So there are four big love duets. Those are the money moments in Guno's opera.
1: Yeah, this is really all a vehicle for beautiful duet singing between the soprano and the tenor.
2: So why is it five acts? Four duets. Well, and it's a French opera, so you've got to make room for the ballet. So, and, and intermission and all the society gathering when the opera is not happening. What do you mean make room for the ballet? There has to be a ballet in 19th century French opera. That's the rule. That's why we have all of that ballet music from Verdi operas. Verdi didn't want to write ballet music. He didn't care. But if he wanted his operas produced in France, you got to have a third-act ballet. And it's got to be in the third act, too, because the men who love the cute little ballerinas have other things to do in the evening than go to the opera, but they will come in the third act to watch them dance.
1: But this isn't purely French grand opera. This was a little bit different. The music is a little bit more subtle. It doesn't have that huge grandstanding thing. It's very romantic, but it's not as showy and doesn't have as many musical special effects as a lot of the French grand opera at the time had.
0: Very cool. So... If it's all about the four love duets, let's walk everybody through them.
1: Sure. You have one that comes at the ball in Act One when they meet each other for the first time and they spot each other and fall in love. That's like West Side Story the dance at the gym. Yes. Right. Let's Of course we have the famous balcony scene which you can't possibly take out of this story so it's in the opera too
2: it's the most famous scene in the entire story ever is the balcony scene so yes there's a fantastic love duet between the two there it's actually in two parts while i've seen west side story i've seen the movie
0: i'm a little hazy on the balcony scene and why it's so famous
1: it's the height, no pun intended, of romance. Um, <laughs> Romeo sneaks into the Capulet's estate. It's nighttime. She is meant to be in bed, and the entire time that they're talking, she's being called away by her nurse. So there's this element of danger there, and they're just not supposed to be together. If anyone saw Romeo at this place at that time, they would have killed him. So. The backdrop for all of it is this intense danger, but they just can't keep away from each other.
2: It's the fire escape scene in West Side Story. Yeah. Mm.
0: So this is the first moment in the opera where they're going against their family's wishes.
2: Yes, that's right. They've met, they've had that duet where they've realized they're deeply attracted to each other. And now, as Maren said, under cover of night and at great danger, they are admitting their love for each other.
1: Yeah. And they know now, when they first met, in that first duet, They don't know that their families are enemies. They don't know who the other person is. Now they know, and the stakes are much higher.
0: What's going on in the third love duet?
2: Well, you remember that in the story of Romeo and Juliet, in addition to the lovers dying, because two deaths is just not enough, there's a murder involved as well. So Romeo kills one of the Capulet family members, and that raises the stakes even further. So the third love duet happens after Tybalt has been killed by Romeo, and he's back with Juliet, and, and this poor girl, they're both teenagers, but this poor girl... She's fallen in love with this guy, and this guy has killed one of her family members. So it just wrenches up the emotional factor that much more.
1: What's interesting, though, in the opera, and this is just written into the libretto, the scene where Romeo goes to see Juliet after he's killed her cousin, Juliet forgives him immediately. She basically says... I mean, he hated you. He was going to kill you. One of you had to die, so I guess it might as well have been him. Everything's fine, my love. So it's uh <laughs> She just threw her cousin
2: <laughs> under the bus, kind of. Well, you know, that's interesting, Maren, because I'm going to disagree with you at this point. I mean, not disagree, but I'm going to put a different shade on it. Because I think that the theme of forgiveness is incredibly powerful here. And it's forgiveness that is driven by the kind of crazy romantic love that we associate with this story. But if you consider that you love two people who don't like each other or your obligation to somebody is torn because your family says no, but your heart says yes. So she is in an, in an incredible state. For the convenience of drama, she does have to get over Tybalt's death pretty quickly. But I think that there is a possibility of considering... The cost and benefit of deep forgiveness that Juliet offers to Romeo here.
1: There is. I will say it happens in approximately four bars of music. But but yes. <laughs> we have to
2: condense things a little bit.
1: Yeah.
0: And so there's one final love duet, and I'm going to assume that it happens when everything,
2: stuff starts to get really, really real. Juliet has taken the love draft given to her by Friar Laurent. To put her to sleep. To put her to sleep, nobody will know. Romeo finds her, doesn't know about the love potion, thinks she's dead, so Romeo takes not a, a sleeping draft, but an actual poison. And then Juliet wakes up, And they have time for one more duet, but guess what? He's going to die, so they got to take care of this business pretty quickly. So that's the fourth love duet. Is it a short love duet? No, 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 of course not. It's a slow-acting poison because this is one of the big money notes in the opera. So no, we don't want to let that opportunity pass too
1: quickly. When they're there together and she first wakes up, the beginning of that duet, it's almost as though he himself forgets that he's taken any poison. And it's only when they make a move to walk out of this family tomb that they're both singing in that suddenly it catches up to him and he realizes he's going to die and he tells her
2: And there's another topic for future podcasts, which is great opera scenes that occur in tombs. <laughs> yes. We have this one, Aida. There are some more, I'm sure. But it's one of those logical places where you go to have a serious conversation.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it happens today. A lot of uh, a sure. lot of
2: important stuff in Game of Thrones happens in the family crypt. That's exactly right. In a way, it's a familiar dramatic trope. I
0: like hanging out in cemeteries.
1: <laughs> Just kidding.
0: <laughs> Um, Okay, so those are the four love duets. There's a couple other musical numbers that we need to talk about, right?
1: I mean, the four love duets are the central pillars of this opera, but there's some other really gorgeous um, moments in the music. Like what? Well, I will tell you. Juliet sings this really delightful waltz tune, Je veux vivre, in Act One. Uh, at the ball. This is before any of the bad stuff happens. It captures all of her youthful teenage spirit. She's 14. She's at a party that's thrown for her birthday. And they're talking about marrying her off to to Paris, Um, this man that would be an advantageous marriage for her family. But she doesn't want any of that. This aria is all about how much she wants to just enjoy being a carefree young woman. It has so much joie de vivre a joy joy of living in it and it's really bubbly so that's lots of fun and it's it's one of the most famous pieces maybe the most famous piece in this opera
0: yeah I think you're right
1: yeah which is interesting because it actually wasn't written into the score originally really Gounod added it for the soprano who premiered the role Madame Carvalho she had beautiful voice beautiful high notes a great high register and so he added it in so she had something great to sing in the first act There's also the aria that Romeo sings right before the balcony scene when he first enters the courtyard to try to find Juliet at night. He's singing, you know, awake, awake, my love. He wants to see her, so he's basically beckoning her from below.
2: This is when he's throwing rocks at the balcony window. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs)
0: So there's some musical moments for you to check out and enjoy. Hope you liked them. Gounod, who knew? Who is this guy?
2: (laughs) Charles Gounod was a French composer, hardworking, worked hard all his life on music, didn't have success for a long time. The thing that we know best of his today is his other opera, which is more popular than Romeo and Juliet, and that's Gounod's Faust based on the story of Faust, one of the best devils in all of opera that there is. And this came a little bit after Faust. So he was very famous at this point, and was doing very well. But those are the two things that he's best remembered for these two operas.
1: Yeah, between Faust and Romeo and Juliet, there were a bunch of flops. Poor guy. Yeah,
0: poor guy. Well, that's how it goes. So Marin, you've seen this production right you went on New Year's Eve I did big night out yes yeah were you all dressed up
1: uh no I was I was truly the least well-dressed person in the audience that night and I was love that about you I kind of ashamed of it
0: <laughs> oh come on no truly oh that's too bad yeah well tell us about it how was it who's in it was it any good
1: it was great and it was great it was the premiere of this production nice. um, where were you sitting I was sitting in, in some awesome press seats down in the orchestra it was nice. great but, yes, it was the premiere of this production by Bartlett Shear, starring Diana Damrau as Juliet and Vittorio Grigolo as Romeo.
2: When was it set? Is it set in 16th century Italy?
1: It's not. It's set in the 18th century. Okay. So it's a little bit updated. Just
2: a little bit. Just
1: a little bit. Visually spectacular. There's this tall, really imposing Italian building structure that dominates the set. And is, it sort of captures the grandeur and a sense of there being crowds and lots of people around, but also has different levels. So you have the you know the, the option of that balcony scene. The costumes are just really colorful. It sort of captures a sense of opulence and um, and those bright energy. colors,
2: yeah, they give it energy. They give it real vitality, and yes. I think that that's a really really helpful thing. In opera productions now, because we can think of these things as kind of fusty and old, and if the colors are bright, we tend to be a little more alert to the reality that is not real, that is being portrayed.
1: Yes, and this felt anything but fusty and old. You know, they also had these great Venetian masks, you know, that ball scene at the very beginning. Romeo and, and the other Montagues, they're masked, and they're just these fantastic Venetian masks they're wearing.
2: I wish that tradition would come back. I, I think that's a wonderful thing, to go to a party as somebody else. And we hardly ever do that. I guess you can do it at Halloween. Yeah, About, once a year. Well, right.
1: Maybe we can come into work one day. Wearing, uh, wearing masks.
2: I'm only sorry that I've been photographed at all.
1: <laughs> Another really wonderful moment in this production is actually the fight scene, the sword fight between Romeo, well, Mercutio and Tybalt and then Romeo and Tybalt. It is so...
2: It's so surprising. It is. Because it, you yes. just don't think of that stuff as happening in front of you. We see fight scenes in the movies and on television and we take them totally for granted. But when you see them on stage in front of you, if they're well done, it can be terrifying. And I don't know how many fights you... I've only seen a couple of fights on the street. I know, Mike, that your Saturday nights are filled with that kind of activity. Usually. But mine (laughs) are, are not. And they're terribly frightening when you see them in real life. But on stage, if they can bring you to that sense of vitality. That's really something. And you had that experience? It does.
1: It it, it looked as real as you can imagine. And that's definitely not always the case in opera. This was the best staged sword fight scene that I've ever seen.
2: Do you think
0: that the singers need to have hand-to-hand combat training in order to pull this off?
1: Well, there are fight choreographers, yeah, that, Abs- that go and train them
2: Yeah, absolutely. exhaustively. Um, because to make the illusion, you have to come as close as you can to, to have it look real. So, yeah, they're intensely closely choreographed and they can be dangerous. They can be dangerous. So, yeah. Any uh,
0: stories of people getting hurt?
2: Well, you'd have to talk to stunt performers and dancers. You know, a lot of this stuff is wait, done wait, wait, by wait, dancers. Wait, 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 wait.
0: They have stunt doubles in opera?
2: Well, sure. I, absolutely. You've got a, a, a gazillion dollar voice. We're not going to waste that. Well, so,
0: I had no idea.
2: Well, that's really cool. How much of your disbelief can you suspend? And sometimes we are asked to suspend more of it than others at a given moment in a stage production. So, mm-hmm. this is one of those moments when yeah, we might bring in a substitute to do that.
1: Beyond the energetic ball, the energetic fight scene, the other thing to mention about this production is just the sheer energy and vitality of the two lead singers. Damrau and Grigolo are just so they have so much uh Damrau and Grigolo just have so much verve, and they manage to convince you that they're enamored teenagers, you know, just the, the way they move across the stage quickly and exuberantly. Uh, but Grigolo himself just has a sense of, of danger about him. He actually used to race cars, so he kind of brings a little bit of that with him. He himself called Romeo and Juliet a strange, badass opera. (laughs) Nice. And if if that dude's racing cars, then he can tell us a little something about what it means to be badass. He does sound like a badass. And he, he totally brings it.
0: It is time for our YouTube picks. We recommend some videos for you to familiarize yourself with Romeo and Juliet. Jeff, what did you bring for us?
2: Well, I'm going to disappoint you right away because I didn't bring a video. It's a YouTube file, but it's not a video. It's actually a pirate recording of a production of Romeo and Juliet from 1967, the Metropolitan Opera on tour in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm, but, exotic. But the, <laughs> the, the history of Met tours is a fabulous story of entertainment in the middle of the 20th century in America. They used to go all over the place, and they had fabulous casts who toured. This was one of those occasions. 1967, the Italian tenor Franco Corelli, one of the operatic greats, and his Juliet was another uh, operatic great, the American soprano Moffo. And so they are Romeo and Juliet in Hartford. And it's a pirate recording. So you're going to hear the audience rustling. You're going to hear people coughing once in a while. And um, Pirate, and... you mean bootleg? Yeah. Like
0: somebody in the audience was recording this? Yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. And
2: I don't know f- how they managed to sneak in the recorder, what it was. Because it was they probably used... like
0: 1,000 pounds back then.
2: I, I think so. Uh, I've also read it was an in-house recording. So maybe okay. it was just an archival recording. I don't know the source of it. You yeah. can buy it. You can find it online. Huh. But uh, the scene that I've included is that very famous balcony scene, the second part of the balcony scene. So we're going to get to hear uh, Romeo say, "Parting is such sweet sorrow," um, in in this three in these three numbers. But the reason it's so magical, well, Mofo is just incredible. But this is a, a major Corelli moment. The last note, the file is about eight minutes long. So you're going to hear Romeo say goodnight and escape from the Capulet's estate. But that last note he sings, you just won't believe it. And you'll hear the audience react. It's also wonderful to hear these old recordings um, because the audiences are so knowledgeable. And so they're on the edge of their seats the entire time. So it's a it's a great, great performance by Corelli. And Moffo is no slouch either. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Marin, what do you got for us today?
1: I have a clip of Deanna Damraus singing Juliet's famous waltz, Je veux Vivre." It's a concert version, so not staged. You get to hear the beauty of her voice, which is kind of like liquid sunshine. It just has this vibrancy to it and this sparkle. What a great way to to introduce yourself to her as a singer. And so a great aria sung by this Amazing singer.
0: Nice. I can't wait to check that out. I brought a clip from 2007. It's Anna Netrebko at the Met, and it's the scene where she is uh, struggling with the idea of taking the potion and going to sleep. The set, to me, is just—it's a—it's a metaphor for what's going on in her mind at the time. It's a bed on a platform with a set of stairs leading up to the bed in the center of the stage, and she slowly crawls up the stairs as if she's trying to to summon the courage to take this potion. And, you know, she gets to the bed, and she holds up the potion, and then she has second thoughts, and she climbs on the bed. She finds the dagger under the pillow. She thinks about stabbing herself right then, and then finally takes the potion. It's just a cool performance to watch. Her acting is amazing, and, of course, the way she sings is just world-class. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I got a fan crush on Anna DeTrebko, so it's a pleasure (laughs) to watch.
2: I think that that's an interesting point that you make, Mike, about the beauty of the set. Because one of the things that makes opera great today is that it used to be that singers didn't have to be actors. You could park and bark, was the expression. Hmm. And everything would come through the music. And now, because of television and because of the movies, we demand more realism or a greater illusion of realism, from opera performers. So the fact that Grigolo and Damrau have that chemistry and can exhibit the illusion of that youthfulness, they are both young singers, but that adds a different kind of vitality to a performance that may make up, not make up for, but present a different facet of the art of opera than was present in those productions of years ago when you could just stand and sing. Now we want a little action, but we have great singers too who are able to do that. So you have Damrau and Grigolo and a whole generation of people who have really great vocal chops, but they also, as you mentioned, Marin, are terrific actors on stage. And as you mentioned, Mike, it is a visually interesting thing. Opera is not just sound, it's all of theater. And so if we don't have the emphasis on particular kinds of deep, musical understanding that maybe we had arguably years ago now we have visual appeal which also presents another facet of the art
0: yeah and to your point i mean part of this video she's like on her knees in bed killing it just (laughs) killing it singing wonderfully super high and 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 in tune and powerful and and i mean i don't know for sure but um i've been told there's no mics in the met so like you know she's projecting it's just it's just a fantastic performance So you at home can check out all of these clips at the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org.
1: And while you're there, leave us a note. Let us know what you think about the show.
0: And if you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your audio. Thank you so much, Jeff Spurgeon, for being with us today. It was a real treat, as always.
2: Great to be with you guys. Thanks.
1: He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian.
0: And I am Mike Shobe. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time.